Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been put on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome to Mosaic. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Shadrick and I serve here as the campus ministry pastor by day, but I have a confession to make. As you can see my leg by night, I'm a MMA fighter. <laughs> no, I didn't actually get into a fight with a person. I got into a fight with a table at the UT campus and obviously the table won. It won big time. I broke my leg for a what else did I do? I dislocated my kneecap. That was pretty bad. I partly tore my meniscus and I tore all of my ankle ligaments, but you should see that table. There's nothing wrong with it. It's in storage. It was used on Friday for TGA and me and that table, we're going to meet again one day soon. So we're continuing in our series entitled For the Love in which we are looking at the biographical writings of John as he examines Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. And John is actually one of Jesus's closest disciples because he was an eyewitness to both his crucifixion and his transfiguration. And 
we begin to see something that is very clear throughout Scripture. Is One thing is that God is trying to get us to see that we should believe and trust in his resurrection. And John actually says this at the end of the chapter. It says this, it says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Another thing that is very apparent when we look throughout this scripture passage is that Jesus reveals his most reliable evidence of his resurrection to the least of these. And by the least of these, I mean the people who are least likely to believe in Jesus's resurrection and two, the people who Jesus would least likely use to actually prove his resurrection. There's three reasons why we should believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And those three things are number one, the empty tomb. Number two, the sorrow that looms. And number three, the open womb. So number one, the empty tomb. We're going to be here for a little bit, so just hold along with me as we go through this. So in the beginning of John chapter 20, it reads this. It says, now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Well, the very first obvious piece of evidence of Jesus' resurrection is that his body was not there. And to be honest with you, when it comes to things like death and scary situations, I'm just going to say this. From the very beginning, these are things that black people just don't question a lot. I mean, we actually don't need the details of everything that happens. We don't want the details of everything that happens. Why? Because this is how you end up being dead or coming up missing. I mean, we see this in scary movies all the time, right? Black people don't go looking for this stuff. We just simply avoid these situations. And we're never even seen in the movie again because we've left the scene. See, last year, my wife and I, we got a, chance to go, got a chance to go to Pittsburgh, and there we visited my grandparents' gravesite. And yes, it was pretty sad, but it's actually a really beautiful and historic place in the Pittsburgh area. And I had a thought just for a split second. I wondered what my grandparents actually looked like today. Like I said, just for a second. And I wondered by request if, because of my family's really rich history in the Pittsburgh area, would they let me see my grandparents? Now, we know that this was not going to happen, but let's just say that they said, okay, we'll let you see your grandparents. And as they opened up their grave, their body wasn't there. Now, most people would immediately begin to question, well, what happened? Where are they? But no, not me as a black man. No, 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 no. I wouldn't have even said anything or questioned anything. I just would look at Caress and say, hey, you know what? It's time to get going to the Steelers game. The lines are pretty long, and I would have went on about my happy black business. But in all seriousness, in regards to the resurrection, I mean, I know somebody's probably saying, come on, Chad, you got to give me something better than that, right? Jesus is alive. He's not in this tomb that supposedly his disciples placed him in. And the guards who were there just passed out at the scene. This all seems pretty sketchy. And to that, I say, I actually understand. I understand that. See, growing up as a child and even today as a pastor, I pretty much question everything. I actually question a lot of what I read in the Bible. This is a true confession. Um, I think that everybody in some way, form, or fashion should probably question some of the stories in the Bible because they're a little different, right? 
And if you don't question them, you're either really gullible or what I like to call super save. Like you just believe automatically, <laughs> right? But I myself, I actually think a lot of the same thoughts as somebody who identified themselves as either being an atheist or agnostic. But over the years, that type of skepticism has actually led me to study the legitimacy of Christianity and in turn has solidified my faith in Jesus. So when it comes to the resurrection, there were a few questions that I needed growing up that I needed to be answered. And those questions were, A, did Jesus really die? B, who was guarding the tomb? And C, were the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection credible? To answer the first two, we got to revisit parts of chapter 19 in John. So A, did Jesus really die? And although that you would think that this is common sense, this is one of the most believed arguments by those against Jesus' resurrection. Having done campus ministry for the past eight years, I actually hear this all the time. Many people thought that Jesus was drugged or he fainted and then it was a conspiracy put on by his followers to just take him away. But that's really not the case. See, in John 19, 1, it says this. It says, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. See, historically, the chances of surviving a crucifixion were so rare because scourging actually left a person's veins and their arteries exposed before they were even placed on a cross. Jesus' ordeal actually started with this type of scourging. By the way, this wasn't just John who depicted this. We actually see this in all four Gospels accounts about Jesus' death. See, Jesus was tied to a post and beaten with a Roman whip called a cat of nine tails that had bone and lead balls woven throughout of it. And they began to beat him and lacerations were made on his body to the extent that the scriptures say that you couldn't even recognize who Jesus was. Some doctors have noted today that Jesus could have alone died just by the amount of blood that he lost. After that, he had five to seven inch nails or spikes either placed through his hands or his wrists and through his feet. And then he was placed on a cross where he began to suffocate. If a Roman soldier wanted to expedite this process of a crucifixion, they would then go and break the legs of the victim so they wouldn't have the strength to be able to pull themselves up to be able to breathe. And this is what actually happened to the two other men who were on the cross alongside with Jesus. And the scripture says this. So, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. See, by not breaking Jesus' legs, the soldiers actually assisted in fulfilling a prophecy that Pastor Morgan talked about last week in Psalms 34 that ensured that none of the Messiah's bones would be broken. This is actually one of the many signs that we know that Jesus is indeed our true and risen king. But to ensure that Jesus was dead, the Roman soldiers then took a spear and thrusted it through his side, puncturing the sack around his heart. And scripture plainly states that. It says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, there's a very interesting thing that we see here from the writer John and that is that he began, he's beginning to record an aspect of Jesus' death that has some very descriptive medical terminology within it. Critical injuries like the piercing that occurred that Jesus causes the body to do two things. One, it enters into circulatory shock, something that you see at either car accidents or assault crimes. And two, with this type of piercing, when death is accompanied by it, there's this term called pericardial infusion. There you go, Mom, if you're listening. I'm using my graduate degree for something. 
This is a condition where water begins to accumulate around the heart and the lungs. And this is what happened to Jesus. Jesus' heart actually ruptured and so did his lungs. Now, it appears that this uneducated fisherman is reporting a very specific diagnosis about Jesus' death. So, do you actually think that John, a fisherman, would have known what have happened to Jesus' body just by his mere education alone? I would say no. I don't think they teach you those things in fisherman school. And if they did, then I should have went there instead of all the loans that I accumulated for my graduate degree. Do you think that John said this merely in an effort to deceive us centuries later? Well, that doesn't make sense. Or could it we just attribute that what John saw is what he really saw during Jesus' death? To that, I would say, yes, that's more reasonable. And if you don't believe me as a pastor or a campus missionary or John as a fisherman, because that's pretty sketchy in and of itself, then you can read much of the same account and details of Jesus' crucifixion in the book of Luke from a doctor, or you can talk to a more credible John. He's actually right here. He's not just an elder, but he's a doctor in our church, and he can tell you, like anybody else, that dead is dead. (laughs) Jesus was dead. And it was obvious to the naked eye, even to the person who would least believe in his resurrection. Jesus is not walking. He's not talking. And as time is passing, his temperature is leaving his body minute by minute. But let's suppose somehow Jesus survived all of this. And let's suppose somehow he still had brain activity in his body. And let's suppose somehow he was still breathing after his presumed death. He would not have survived what is coming up next. And let's read. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his body away. Nicodemus also, who had earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So time has passed, and the disciples have now taken the nails out of Jesus' body and have taken him off the cross and now are leading him to where he will be buried. And although we can read this in a matter of seconds, this actually takes time to accomplish. The scripture says that they took 75 pounds of spices and wrapped Jesus from the top of his head to the soles of his feet to prevent premature decay because embalming was something that really didn't exist at the time. But I want us to begin to think about what it would have taken to resuscitate Jesus in that moment. He was scourged. He endured a crucifixion. He had a spear thrusted through his side. He is now wrapped in 75 pounds of spices over his face for three days. Jesus was not breathing, and neither would you be. I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but I'm actually going to be seriously sarcastic in this moment. Could you really in this moment see Jesus alive, inching himself off of this burial table in 75 pounds of spices for over three days? If Jesus was able to do this, I mean, his core strength would have to be really impeccable. I mean, not only that, if you believe that Jesus is able to do that, I would not have only asked him to be my Lord and Savior, but I would be like, bro, can you be my personal trainer? (laughs) I need those type of abs. It would almost take a godlike strength to survive something like this. So maybe that's just who he is. He's God. B, who was guarding the tomb? At the end of Matthew 27, there's a details that are listed that after Jesus was placed in a tomb, it was sealed and guarded by Roman guards until that early Sunday morning. 
N.T. Wright, who is the Bishop of Durham and someone who has admitted, actually written many books attributed to the Christian faith and really somebody who's way smarter than I am, says this in this documentary, A Case for Christ. He says, in those days as a Roman soldier, if you let a prisoner get away, his life was replaced with it. See, in no way would a Roman soldier risk his life or his family's life for the sake of somebody that they wanted to condemn in the first place. In addition, the stone that was placed in front of Jesus' tomb, some historians said, would have taken over 20 men to be able to remove it. So let's just suppose Jesus is still alive and somehow he was able to move that giant stone by himself from the inside. Jesus then, with all of his injuries from that scourging and that crucifixion, would have to fight off however many Roman soldiers were outside of that tomb, whose lives again would be at stake if he ever got past them. See, the only way to remove a stone of that size, it would take a earth-shaking, supernatural-like power to make that happen. And that is what happened. It says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. And for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. I bet you they did become like dead men when they saw a dead man become alive. And this is why black people, again, don't stick around for things like this. See, the angel that moved away that stone and the power that Jesus displayed was a resurrection type of power that made way for everybody to be able to see Jesus' resurrection. And that leads me to the third question of skepticism. Were the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection credible? Well, there are many witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, but we're going to focus on three that you can clearly see within this passage. And number one, that's Simon Peter. Number two, that's Mary Magdalene. And number three, it's Thomas. So number one, Simon Peter. The scripture reads this. It says, so she, she being Mary, ran and went to Simon Peter, another disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lined with the linen cloths, but folded in a place by itself. So why would Jesus want to make Peter one of his first witnesses of his resurrection? Well, to me, it's quite simple. I suppose that Jesus wanted to make Peter one of the first witnesses of his resurrection because Jesus is in the business of always revealing himself to those who deny him the most. See, this is the same Peter that had denied Jesus three times before his death and during his trial. Yet Jesus is basically showing Peter that despite your denial of me, I'm still devoted to revealing my resurrection to you. And Jesus actually does this to us today who still deny him. Well, what about Mary Magdalene? Now, here's where we finally find ourselves at point number two of the sermon, which is the sorrow that looms. Now, in John chapter 20, we see Peter excited of Jesus' resurrection, and he goes off to tell the other disciples. But this is also where we find Mary, who is feeling quite the opposite of Peter. Scripture says this, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. One of the greatest pieces of evidence that you and I have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus is the sorrowfulness that Mary displays when she finds out Jesus' body is missing. 
And why is that? Because Jesus is the one who actually healed all of Mary's afflictions. See, in multiple gospel accounts, the Bible actually details Mary's radical conversion experience with the Lord before his death in which he delivered her from demonic influence in her life. So for her to have not only experienced her Savior's death just days prior, she is now experiencing the sorrowfulness of feeling that somebody has stolen Jesus' body. I want to ask you a personal question today. Have you ever experienced something in your life that once brought you so much joy, but unexpectedly it was taken away from you? Many of us know that feeling today. For some of us, it was the loss of a child at an early age. For other of us, it was that business that we started that once provided so much for our family and it's failing before our eyes. For some of us, it was that spouse or family member that left us in our greatest time of need. It's a type of pain that we experience in life that is so hurtful that we never saw it coming. And then out of nowhere, life begins to pour more things on you that you didn't expect. And it's as if your life is going from bad to worse in a hurry. And see, when this happens, this is when all hope is lost and sorrow begins to loom in our life. Many of you have heard my story of my deep bouts of depression that I face over the past three or four years, but honestly, my depression started when I was really young, and it was during the time where my grandfather in Pittsburgh that I talked about passed away. See, he was a really healthy man and a great provider for our family and an example to us, and he actually died of a heart attack unexpectedly in the arms of my grandmother. And I remember as we went to Pittsburgh, they asked me, hey, Shad, would you play your trumpet? Yes, little known fact, I played a trumpet for a little while at his funeral. And I remember as I began to play the trumpet and his fellow army men came and presented a U.S. flag to my grandmother, I remember her weeping uncontrollably as they began to lower his body into the ground. And my dad, who was the only child, began to weep in that moment too as well. And tears began to roll down my eyes as I played for my grandfather. And I remember the sorrow that was in the area in that moment that followed us home. And it was there we got back to my grandparents' house where my grandfather died that we found our great-grandmother who lived in the house but couldn't attend the funeral because she was paralyzed, passed out, dead. Doctors said that there was no reason for her to die other than the fact out of complete hurt, pain, and sorrow because she couldn't attend the funeral of her son. See, sorrow has a way of looming over us in the darkest moments of our life. And this is how Mary felt. Her healer is dead and her Savior's body is missing. And the one thing that brought her joy, she could never give back, well, unless there was a resurrection. See, Scripture says, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. And I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. I know that some of you today may be in a place of sorrow where you're experiencing something that you didn't know was going to take this type of toll on you. But what do you do when a resurrected Jesus shows up to that dead thing in your life and tells you, my son or my daughter, why are you weeping? I'm actually here to make all things new in your life. So I plead with you, please do not weep away your next business. Don't weep away your next relationship. Don't weep away your next healing or whatever else may be. Because whether it's sometime here on earth or one day when you get to heaven, all your sorrows will fade away because we serve a resurrected king. And what you see now is truly only for a moment if you can really grasp that. 
But the question still remains, why would Jesus reveal his resurrection to Mary Magdalene out of all people? She doesn't fit any of the qualifications of a credible witness at that time because of the culture that she lived in. Number one, she was a woman, and unfortunately women were considered to be second-class citizens in Palestinian Jewish culture. Unfortunately, we still see some of that today. And not only that, she was a woman with a shady past. So I can hear some of you saying, okay, Shad, this is Jesus' prime witness, This Mary that nobody would listen to, I mean, a man would have not even called her to be credible at this time. And to that I say, that's absolutely true. They wouldn't, but Jesus would. And Jesus created women, and Jesus is smart enough to know that if there was anybody in the world who was smart enough to get the facts straight about his resurrection, or any story at that, it would be a woman, because why? Men are dumb, and we forget all the details, and women don't. And I know this all to be true now as a married man, for there's not a day that caress comes home. It tells me a story of all the details of that story, whether I have requested those details or not. And me, being the godly and gracious and loving husband that I always am, I sit and listen to all those details, even during the Steelers game in the fourth quarter where they're driving to win. They're driving to win, but I still listen to the details. I do. That's right. But it goes back to what I said earlier. Jesus really does reveal his most reliable evidence of his resurrection to the least of these. And in the same way, see, Mary being a woman with a troubled past did not disqualify her from Mary being the first eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. And in the same way, your past hurts, your current pain, your flaws don't disqualify you from seeing who Jesus is or him displaying his resurrection power in whatever your life situation may be in this moment. And there's one witness that's credible that we need to look at today, and that's Thomas, which leads me to my last point, the open womb. So this is what scripture actually says. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see his hand, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Thomas has always been a very interesting person to me, not based upon the account that we see of him seeing Jesus during his resurrection, but he's interested in me because of the label that we as Christians have placed on him for centuries. I mean, many of us know his nickname, right? Doubting Thomas. And this is funny to me because this is something that skeptics have actually gotten right about us as Christians is that at times we can be so judgmental. I mean, we have deemed this man not by his God-given name, but by his sin you doubter. I mean, give the man a break. He doubted once. We've never seen him doubt again. He doubted one time. <clears throat> I mean, I wonder what all of us in here would be called for that one sin that we committed years ago before we knew Jesus, right? Man, that would be a really interesting and fun time of confession at community group. <laughs> See, actually, I understand Thomas. They're saying Jesus is dead and now they're saying he's alive and Thomas has not seen him in over eight days, and he is basically saying, I need to see this supposed risen Savior for myself. 
And Thomas has the right to feel that way. Why? Because Jesus' delayed response of his revelation and his resurrection to Thomas produced doubt in his heart. And delay always produces doubt, right? We know this to be true because when doubt sets in, we need truth. We need facts. We need God to show up. And that's really not hard to relate to. I mean, we do this all the time. We say things like, God, if this is your will, give me a sign. I need you to show up right now, God, because if not, I don't know how all of this is going to work out. I don't even know if I ever am going to believe in you anymore. And many times in our lack of faith and disbelief, God does not condemn us for our unbelief. He actually shows himself to us in the way that we need him to in that moment. And this is what Jesus actually did for Thomas. He told Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, please listen to me this morning. Thomas's doubt did not deny Jesus from revealing himself to Thomas. And in the same way, your doubt is not going to deny Jesus from revealing his resurrection power in your life situation today. See, Jesus' resurrection was not about the sinner's faith to believe, but about the Savior's faithfulness. It's not about how much faith we have, but how much faith God displays to us. This is why the Bible tells us that God is faithful when we are faithless. We come to know Jesus not by our faith or our belief or our works, but by what he has done on the cross for us. But how did Jesus reveal himself to Thomas? Well, to me, it's quite clear, but not in the way that you would actually think. Jesus did not reveal himself to Thomas in a dream or a prophetic word or a personal blessing and definitely not a theological debate on Facebook. Jesus revealed himself to Thomas through the wounds that he sustained on the cross. Could it be that Jesus is actually willing and able to reveal himself to you, but yet it's through the avenue of pain? Could it be that way that he is trying to show himself to you, but it's that very thing that you don't want to revisit in your life? To the skeptic today, I say this. Would you allow Jesus to show himself to you even in that life experience that caused you so much hurt and it caused you not to believe in him in the first place? Jesus actually understands this type of pain. To the believer, you may very well believe in Jesus, but if you ever meet a Thomas who, like yourself, depending on what situation you're facing in life, doubts God, in that moment, that person does not need to hear more about Jesus from you. They need to experience Jesus for themselves. And one of the greatest ways that others actually experience Jesus is through the life trials that we have faced. So when we get close to the doubter, like Jesus got close to Thomas and let other people touch the places of our life's greatest pain, this is when people will begin to believe in the God who has pulled us through what seems like our own life's crucifixion. This is why your wounds, to me at least, don't completely heal, because it's the place for you to be vulnerable to others, like Jesus was vulnerable to us when he laid bare before the cross. Some of us have been asking God, God, why do I still have the residue of pain in my life for everybody to see these struggles, yet Your word says that I'm healed. You may be saying, well, yeah, I'm not a cheater anymore, but I'm still dealing with these lust issues. Yes, God, I'm tithing now, but my finances are still all out of whack. Or God, I'm faithful to the call that you have on my life, but I'm not seeing the personal breakthrough that I'm praying for. Can I submit to you that just maybe the open wounds that you have in your life are merely for somebody else's healing and salvation? 
Maybe what you have gone through and are going through is for somebody else more than just yourself. So what wounds today are you asking Jesus to close that he won't? Again, your wounds are for the doubter's belief in God. Your wounds are a reminder that when you are weak, Christ is strong. And your wounds are a beautiful reminder that when death tried to win in your life, it did not stand a chance because we serve a risen king. This is what's true and this is what we have to believe in this moment. Every eyewitness that I have detailed to you today is a credible witness because God reveals his most reliable evidence of his resurrection to the least of these. Jesus was a revealer to a denier in Peter. He was a revealer to a distressed and hurt and sorrowful woman in Mary. And he was a revealer to a doubter in Thomas. And over the past two months, Jesus has been a revealer to me when I have doubted his healing power in my leg and doubted his ability to touch my body. When doctors came to me and said, Chad, you have a tumor in your leg and it may be cancer. See, there's a clear lesson that we can all remember today, whether we are a believer or a skeptic. And it's found in the words of a Bible commentator by the name of David Guzik. And he says this, when you want assurance, look to the wounds of Jesus. They are evidence of his love, of his sacrifice, of his victory, of his resurrection. There is a special blessing for each of us today who believe in this assurance. And this assurance can only be found in the wounds of Jesus.